Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Emma Powell, our new news editor. How are you doing, Emma? Yeah, very well, thanks. Good. And Ian Smith, companies editor. How are you doing, John? Not bad. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. Yeah, survived the uh, the onslaught of results. It's starting to die down, and it's very welcome. Indeed. So, what do we have? This twenty. Five pages two weeks ago, 24 last week, 13 next week. Just starting to get a little bit easier. Light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, right, so busy week on the results front. We'll talk about some of those in due course. Busy week on the news front as well. So Emma, your debut as news editor, what are the big news stories of the week. Should we start with seven days? If That's we start... A good, if we, yeah. big, big, broad, big picture news. Let's start with that. Probably one of the biggest stories was uh, the Fed increasing rates again so that's the third time since the uh financial crisis which happened after we went to press incidentally yeah before yeah, it accuses yeah. us of having missed it no 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 um it was it was very it was expected so i think that's why we could refer to it so yeah it's going to be 0.75 to 1 percent is their range now the dollar interestingly which is generally supported when interest rates increase didn't actually uh move it was very sluggish so i'm not sure what to make of that you could suggest that perhaps everyone thought it was coming so it hasn't really affected the the, the strength of the dollar because it was priced in yeah i mean it, they've already said 3 this year and that's the first one so we should expect two more shares reacted positively to it but do you think that's because um the fed were saying positive things about the strength of the us economy Possibly, Ian. Possibly. Shares seem to react strongly to everything these days. <laughs> and we talked about this on a recent podcast about the market being overvalued. I think, you know, you know, that maybe it's the time to start thinking more circumspectly about, about markets and what's moving them and valuations. But yeah, I, it doesn't surprise me that shares have re- certainty. Markets like certainty. Now we know that there's been an interest rate rise. Exactly right. Exactly. And I think the Fed has been very, after all this kind of uncertainty about when are they going to increase, we've now uh, probably at the most certain point we have been in years because they've actually said we are going to raise interest rates three times. So I think you're right. People expected it. Interestingly, also, um, as we are recording uh, today, uh, the Bank of England has decided to keep interest rates on hold, the base rate on hold, apart from one member of the Monetary Policy Committee who voted to hike. But uh, Yeah, OK, so we've got a bit of a divergence there in, in monetary policy. But th- but again, not really very surprising. No, no, not again, not very, not not very surprising. I don't think anybody realistically thought they were going to vote to increase interest rates. Um, Having said that, I mean the UK economy is growing very strongly. So, so you would have thought that that actually there would perhaps be more uh, hawks now than there perhaps were six months ago. Particularly, kind of considering inflation expectations mm. and, and it, the, it is expected to um to reach well to actually surpass the bank of england's um target two percent rate so later this year yeah yeah absolutely i mean what we learned from the budget was that they thought that the short-term economic picture was stronger than they had thought but there are still um economic um worries about more of the medium term um i'm not sure how much brexit, stock- brexit worries well we can say it can we? Yeah, we can say it. We can say it. No, I think there is definitely a concern about the, the uncertainty that the start of the negotiating process will have on certain industries and the pass-through of the lower pound and when kind of currency hedges come off for businesses. There are there are still concerns that are medium-term concerns, but like you say, the shorter-term picture is stronger. But obviously the Bank of England doesn't think it's strong enough to hike just yet. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the UK economy's strength is down to the consumer. In some respects, the housing market has remained fairly solid, despite the post-referendum wobble. Yeah, I would be naturally cautious that that's that the strength in those two particular markets is going to continue. We're also talking of Brexit, which isn't in the magazine. I think uh, the Queen has passed the, yep. given the royal assent for the triggering of Article yep. 50 this morning. So exciting stuff there. What also also isn't in the magazine, you refer to it, is the fact that they call it a populist party. The anti-immigration party in Holland did not do as well as mm. many had had feared. I think it was this morning, wasn't it? It was 95% of the vote had been... It was 95% counted. I think the Prime Minister's party uh, had 31 seats. Uh, Geertz Wilder's party had 20, which is actually one more than it had last time. And it does make it the second largest party. It's the second largest party. So, But his proportion of the vote was quite small. So people on both sides of the argument are kind of claiming that as a victory for their point of view. Yeah, I think it's a bit too too early to, to call victories in the battle against populism right now, I would have to say. Well, I, I actually, we had a little debate about this in the office earlier, so I'm going to say this on the podcast because I will not have another opportunity to say it. I would like us to stop using the word populist as a synonym for racist <laughs> <laughs> because it's not. Yeah, I went to an interesting... Uh, lecture about that and actually each side of the political persuasion views populism very differently so and it, that speaks to the kind of bubbles that we exist in on social media if you're in a right-wing bubble you get sent lots of things telling you about what the populist left are doing and vice versa yeah i think it's, it can be a very pejorative term all democracy well, I think has a populist aspect to it it's become and it's becoming a, a very much a pejorative term and only a pejorative term. When I, I looked it up this morning, just to confirm what I, what I kind of thought I knew, uh, and actually populism just means policies that are intended to benefit the majority, the, the, the sort of lower echelons of society who are perhaps not as well represented in government as, as perhaps the elites have been. I, th- I think something very interesting is going on here with the way that this, this, this particular word is being manipulated. Well, it has, I mean, in recent times taken on a connotation of playing towards uh, the majority's fears in order to motivate them to vote a particular way. So it's become more exploitative in the um, the reference point of that word. But yeah, I, I think, like you say, it's now being stretched and stretched and often just labelled to points of view that you disagree. Yeah, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very cautious about this. I think, I think something odd is happening with, with this particular word. Anyway, big tangent there. Let's get back to seven days. Yeah, another story which uh, you've actually written your editorial on this week mm, is Unilever. My favourite company. Yeah, Unilever and the chief executive there, Paul Polman, basically coming out and saying that in kind of takeover situations, the odds are stacked in the favour of the company that is making the bid because mm-hmm. they might have had weeks, months. Years years even to you know get together um their plan for a takeover whereas obviously the the company that is the target has only uh 28 days so he says that's unfair yeah it does seem quite unfair doesn't it i mean i i i think paul Polman ought to be a little bit careful because if his if his plans you know came to fruition he he may end up being hoist by his own petard because unilever is a very acquisitive company mm. yes th- there are quite a lot of complaints in corporate governance circles though that the UK takeover code is too weak and that it should be toughened so I wouldn't be surprised if over the next year or so there were um, amendments put into it to give companies that are the target of takeovers more time or more power do you think the balance needs to be redressed at all? not really you think it's fine just as it is yeah absolutely I mean uh, you know I uh, 
It, again, I mean, we're going to come back to this populism thing and the, the whole political backdrop that we have right now. There, we talk about Donald Trump, who, who is calling for some kind of protectionist uh, approach to running US trade policy, as though it's the worst thing in the world. And here we are calling for protectionist policies on, on takeovers. Yeah, and I think that's where economic nationalism actually on both sides of the Atlantic has come back more strongly. Theresa May said in her speech when she was launching her leadership bid uh, for the Tory party, just became before the very short leadership contest and then became Prime Minister, that actually part of her industrial strategy was to stand up for British businesses and said very many similar things to Donald Trump. Whereas he kind of uses Twitter as a bully pulpit to go after Ford, etc. She might go more cap in hand to Nissan, but it's tantamount to the same thing in terms of trying to protect uh, the economic interests of the, com- uh, of the country. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Nissan because this kind of also brings up another point that, that I pick up in my editorial about the nature of Unilever uh, and many of these companies that we we may may or may not call national champions would you call nissan a uk national champion well the point she made in that speech now i can see where you're coming from but the point she made in that speech is it's not just about the ownership of the companies it's also it's about, about jobs it's about jobs and it's about yeah the people. and they're also their importance with unilever to our food supply chain so the actually food supply chain well i mean in terms of economically they are important as i'm, a sorry, I'm just trying to stop myself spluttering into the microphone here I mean, Unilever doesn't exactly sell the things that, that you know keep us alive in terms of you know, food security. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it really doesn't. Course. No, no, you're right. Baby Sorry. shampoo. Yeah, you could be, baby's got to have clean hair. That's true. Um, but in no, terms I of d- being a being a supplier for our key um, retailers, it's an important part of our yeah the consumer goods it's supply a, chain. But, it, but it's only one company within the whole consumer goods supply chain. You know, I looked at uh, through Bloomberg uh, market share in packaged food, for example. Um, it's not the biggest. Yeah, you know, the biggest company is Mondelez through through the takeover of Cadbury, which incidentally brings us back to the whole UK takeover uh, situation. Yeah, the, the the protection of of target companies. Yeah, but Mars is bigger. You know, in in, in personal goods, you know, Unilever is, is up against the P and Gs. You know, basically what I'm saying is business is very international these days, especially these large companies like Unilever. You know, is it right to call them national champions and, and kind of play the national card uh, when you're talking about this kind of thing? I just really don't think it is. Yeah, it's a facile attempt, isn't it? Is it is facile. But That's a good are, word. are you saying the politicians are short-termists? And, they, well, and yeah. chief executives. <laughs> yeah, and obviously the government just doesn't want a big loss of jobs just ahead of Brexit from key industries. Well, you know how many jobs Unilever has in the UK? Oh, it's very... Uh, actually, seven, I, seven and a half thousand. Yeah, you know how many out. employees worldwide? Yes, 168,000. Yeah. 168,000. So, I mean, you know, again, this is an international company. It's dual-listed. And I think the final point of my, I make in my editorial, and I, I stick by this, is that if companies don't want to be taken over, then you have to convince your shareholders that you will deliver better returns over the long term by remaining independent than you will the short-term payday from being taken over. And, we saw and that I stick with, by that. And we saw that with Unilever straight away after being you know, successful initially in rebuffing the approach from Kraft Heinz that they came out and said, we will look at this division, uh, the foods division, to see how we can maximise shareholder value. I mean, the main thing that came out of the commentary around it was look at their margins. I know they're doing work to improve those margins, but they're falling well short. So is there another way of getting value out of that division? Well, well, actually, and on that subject, when we talk about British jobs, you know, how how does a company like Unilever become more efficient, uh, you know, in in a particular industry where where it's perhaps not, doesn't have the margins that some of its competitors do? Cutting jobs, perhaps? Yeah. You know, I mean, this is this this the whole game of of multinational corporations is it is what it is. 
to, to introduce kind of the uh, the nationalistic angle into this, as Paul Polman did, I think is I think as you say, facile. But economic nationalism is not hugely logical from an economic point of view, right? It's the application of an economic idea in order to um, justify your political ends, mm. right? And to cater to, towards your constituents as a political party. That's what you're trying to do, to stay in power and to represent the views of the people that vote for you. So what's, so what's Paul Polman trying to do by, by playing the, the economic nationalism card here? Well, I, he must be playing to the choir in terms of the corporate governance crowd and the government that... Um, agree with him that we are the rules are currently too lax when it comes he's just trying to uh, firm up his defense isn't he he's trying to get more people on his side he's trying to win the argument yeah plenty of companies have rebuffed foreign takeover bids where they've wanted to cadbury failed to rebuff its foreign takeover bid because cadbury was not a very strong company at the time i mean let's let's not forget that and unilever have done quite a good job straight after finding out um, that there was going to be interest, the, the way that the management actually dealt with it in terms of setting up an internal team, um, kind of getting their ducks in a row in terms of how they're going to rebuff the offer. Yeah, you may not be his biggest fan, but I think they did do quite a jo- good job of coming out very quickly and robustly against and made it then very difficult for Kraft Heinz to then make their case because they had to make quite a big argument about cost synergies and almost Unilever almost cut them off at the knees immediately. I, I, I think, I mean, that's, that's true, but, but I I think the Kraft Heinz bid was very speculative anyway, yeah. and I think there was, there was hardly anyone out there who would say this was a good idea. So Agreed. I don't think they had a hard job to do there, quite frankly. But yeah, to call for extra extra protection from the government, I'm not sure that that's required. Particularly as, as I say, they're they're a very uh, acquisitive company themselves. Talking of M and A, let's let's get away from Unilever before my my head explodes. Yeah, M and A has been booming recently. Yeah. The value of domestic deals suggested in the first 10 weeks we've written is the highest since the opening weeks, the first 10 weeks of 2008. So this is is UK companies buying or merging with other UK companies? Yeah. So we've had uh, this week, um, following on from the Standard Life Aberdeen news last week, this week we've had uh, Bovis with two approaches from Galliford Try and also Redrow. Interesting, because let's come back to my point about strong companies don't get taken over. Bovis is the weakest of the house builders. Yeah, exactly. They've had a lot of troubles. Um, I think, Ian, you actually wrote a column on this, didn't you, before? But yeah, they've um, had a lot of troubles in terms of complaints about the quality of their houses. Yeah, they had production issues right at the end of last year, just between Christmas and New Year. They put out a production update saying some of the houses were going to fall from 2016 completions into 2017. Then at the beginning of this year, the chief executive suddenly announced his departure. People started to think, what what is going on at a deeper level? And then we found out that actually there were deeper problems with both their production um, and also their customer service. So then they re- uh, reduced their production um, target for this year to slow things down, to build houses properly, took a provision against this new customer service um, setup that they've got. So in an industry, it's quite interesting because it's got a couple of takeovers in the news section, but this is an industry that is been doing very well, huge supply and demand dynamics, and Bovis has fallen short in terms of return on capital employed, which is the key return metric for house builders. So it's actually a as John says, a weak one in a very strong pack. Um, But because of those problems that it had, its price to net tangible assets fell right back to, um, on a a forward-looking basis, fell to equivalents, which was actually very cheap in the sector. So it's one of those great cases of if a company has a big share price fall on the back of... uh, one-off problems or problems you think they can get over that can then be the grounds for them to be picked off by others within the, within the sector. I guess I guess that makes sense in a market like house building where where scale is important, where actually the land bank is important, where actually if you can get assets cheap, 
uh, that enables you to, to increase your scale as a bidder, then it, then it makes sense. It doesn't make sense in all industries. No, it doesn't But in this sense. one, it does make sense. Yeah, so I think the thing with this one would just be then how big are the underlying problems at Bovis and how costly are they? And we've seen where businesses have taken over other businesses in problems and actually the problems are worse and the redress costs more. Uh, that would be the, the concern here. But as Jonas makes uh, clear in his write-up, uh, it would be good for the geographical spread of the company, the combined which, company. Which, which, if com- it which was combined Gallif- company are we talking about? The more li- yeah, the more likely suitor, which is Galliford. Because right. Red Row came with an offer that was actually a discount to the closing price which was a little bit cheeky yeah that's probably just well, it sounds like it's taking the mickey to me. Yes. Well, I guess they just thought we'll try our hand because they have had these troubles but they were both they weren't I wouldn't say either of them were spectacular offers but um, yeah Red Row's been dismissed but Galliford Try they're still in discussions with okay. and Galliford Try um, is operates more in the west southwest and, and the midlands whereas um, Bovis is more southern England so obviously as you say it's good land bank solid assets if you can correct the problems then that's a way for Gulliford to enhance Linden Homes as its house building division to enhance that spread and that's that area of the country as everyone knows that's where you get the highest returns on well, Lind- Linden building out near me actually yeah very very solid homes by the looks of things very expensive homes as well actually. but they also have their affordable housing division as well so Gulliford's interesting building it could be a good combination um, so they might have just sparked perhaps with Redford it was uh, perhaps with Red Row it was that they thought they could start the conversation you know come in with a low ball offer and then edge up um but and obviously, obviously they didn't realize that Galliford was probably mounting a bit at the same time exactly either. right so, exactly we did right. actually write a piece in january jonas wrote a piece on uh the potential for bovis to be taken over was that barclay um, group that schroders who was the chief shareholder in bovis i think approached one of the other house builders um, i think it was barclay to say would you be interested in taking over yeah so that was the the, as soon as Bovis really fell in price um, and people looked at how well the other house bills are doing relatively, um, the question was, who's going to buy this business? Mm. I'd argue it's, it's, and I think Jonas is in agreement that it's, it's a good, it seems like a good deal for Bovis shareholders. The real question is, what's the benefit for Galliford Tri shareholders? I, I think there's clearly a benefit. If it if it if it gives them extra geographic exposure and uh, uh, and, and the uh, land bank and a land bank. Um, also, you know, house builders, how how big can those problems really be? Unless they are fundamental financial issues, you know, like sort of bankruptcy uh, potential, how big can the issues be that another house builder that knows what it's doing can't sort them out, especially when it comes to product quality? And all new build housing has snagging issues, which is some have worse snagging issues than others, and it's part of the nature of the building. So I completely agree with you. And if some of their problem... It looks to have been above some of the problem looks to have been with their subcontractors was obviously Gal- subcontractors exactly right and Galliford has their own relationships and they have a track record so it's one of those where you look at it and you think actually is that the hardest thing to correct and, and actually a new management team coming in would be very because obviously um, Bovis needs a new chief executive anyway so a new management new group of people running the show according to a different set of rules um could be good for the business could be good for shareholders because obviously it is a um uh, an all-share merger proposed. so we like we like Gallifrey try we're yeah, sticking with, we're sticking with that which which we've stuck behind yeah and uh, it looks likely that, that it's going to win this right now i think so yeah it's got till um april the 9th Oh, Bovis, they must be screwing that the uh, put-up-or-shut-up code only gives them 28 days to mount a defence. Okay, another takeover in the, the offing this week is uh, involves Wood Group and AMEC. What's going on here? Yeah, AMEC Foster Wheelers has been in a bit of trouble, unsurprisingly, for a while. Um, Which was a takeover 
created by takeover itself exactly but you know it's unsurprising given the kind of commodities environment and the kind of legacy of that downturn um and just to be clear amic foster wheeler is an oil services company um they've had very high debt operationally they've had issues in terms of their pipeline obviously becoming a lot thinner their margins have decreased again so Income Wood Group uh, making an offer to them. Um, and I think the, the idea is is that basically Amec Foster Wheeler would be less reliant on oil and gas services and would be able to diversify more into kind of chemicals and power. So, so again, that looks like I think Alex's take on that one is uh, he calls it a life raft and, uh, and says that kind of shareholders would be wise to kind of take that. Is that looking likely to happen then? It's a recommended. It's Fine. a recommended. It's going to happen. Then. Yeah, going to happen. It's an interesting comparison with the house builders because this is a an industry that's been at a low point, obviously because of the oil price cutting mm. the um, contracts for all services companies and offshore construction, all those things. So it's one of those more traditional, tough market huddling together for safety. So like I the think- asset managers, you could even say, like the active asset managers that we've. Yeah. Yeah, even though they've actually been doing quite well, but it's the longer, mm. but it's the longer term challenge. It reminds me of the Aviva Friends Life merger a bit. So know? I think it's slightly different. I think I think asset managers are more like house builders because you're also almost buying a, you know, you're buying scale. Scale. You're buying a position yeah. that you already have. You're buying the land bank of assets under management. They are facing a lot of um, regulatory pressure though, and over fees and things like that, and not and and, and it's something we've learned over this having done the results for 2016 that their performance fees are really suffering and there is that question of uh, risk reward and are they going to have to uh, take more risk for less reward I think we're getting into the realms of the active passive uh, debates (laughs) here which I think is is one for another time I I think active managers have been uh, under the cosh uh, in that respect in respect of their performance vis-a-vis uh, passive, quite unfairly. I think we spoke about this last week. Yeah, we did week. last week. Um, I, I, the reason I said that I, this reminded me more of the Aviva Friends Life takeover, that w- was because that was at a time where there was regulatory intervention in the annuity market and then that market was shrinking. So it was a really defensive move from Aviva to buy a company that was in its home market but really helped firm up its cash flows. And Aviva, which is um, one of Emma's tip of the year this year, we've, we've seen how strongly that's come through for the business. So I'd see this in that respect of uh, a company in a in an industry that faces big challenges you know supporting each other you know so amic gets balance sheet support but if you're a, a shareholder you at least get to be part of a growing and more um stable longer term group but 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 they don't have they don't these acquisitions between oil services companies they don't necessarily they bring contracts obviously and and and, and uh, order books but but they they don't necessarily have the kind of certainty of, yeah, the of demand thing. and yeah. recurring revenues. Uh, you know, they don't have they don't bring land banks in. The, you know, or something equivalent to a land bank. You know, as you say, they're much more reliant on sort of finding new opportunities to 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 offset the one that's that's kind of dried up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So I think it's a little, a more. This is an acquisition that looks more difficult to make work. But, yeah, yeah. but good luck to them. I'm sure they I'm sure they have a plan. I mean, another takeover uh, that we've been writing about recently is, is Fox's uh, takeover Sky, which is in the news again this morning. Uh, it's been referred by the Culture Secretary. Karen Bradley. Karen Bradley to uh, Ofcom. 
for yeah. review to Ofcom and the CMA. It's actually quite confusing. There's a few different parts going on there. So Ofcom are going to be looking at it on a media plurality basis, which they've done before. Which they've done well. It's a well, slightly, you've written about this as well. Yeah, you've it, said this was going to happen. Yeah, and it's a slightly different deal to the past News Corp takeover attempt of B Sky B because of the way that News Corp has changed the business into mm-hmm. Fox, which has the the broadcasting assets and and the News International News Corp that has the uh, newspaper assets. Um, so what Ofcom are looking at this time is media, media plurality, so the amount of people that own have like ownership of a lot of um, different aspects of our media, uh, titles within our media, commitment to broadcasting standards uh, on behalf of Fox as the takeover of Sky. So their concern there is that Sky News might become kind of Fox Newsified. Well, this is um, a rather subjective measure, but there you go. Yeah, but it, it, obviously we have kind of tougher broadcasting regulation in the UK than they do in the US. So I think there must be you some You wouldn't think it there. sometimes, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then also, um, I think Ofcom is separately doing a fit and proper review of, uh, of James Murdoch of their ability to kind of then run Sky News, which would then be kind of a broadcaster. So I think that's a separate thing that's coming alongside. Um, but also, the deal has been referred to... Um, so those are the public interest grounds, and, the, and Ofcom are going to be deciding on them. But the deal has also been referred on jurisdictional issues to the CMA. So it's just a multi-level sign-off. I think what people have taken out of... what is, A lot of people thought it was going to be referred. But I think there are quite a few things on which Ofcom could uh, fail this and decide to refer it themselves so yeah it's it's a tricky one there's a few different levels that they have to get over what i argued in my column in january was that on the purely the media plurality issue there are reasons to think it's more likely to go through this time because of the makeup of the different groups um, i don't see that as being a big as issue as it was last time no exactly right and also last time they did agree um, the worry was the possession of newspapers and um, Sky. I mean, if you view it just as the people that own the businesses, obviously because the Murdochs still own controlling sh- uh, stakes in in both um, of the businesses uh, that own the UK newspapers and that would then own Sky News, you could say, well, it's the same issue. But it's fundamentally a split corporation. What the f- Fox is trying to argue is that there won't be cross-media um, kind of uh, there can't be cross-pollination of the media from the newspapers to Sky News. So trying to argue that Sky News will remain impartial and independent um, and will not be intervened with too much by by Fox. So it, it's about who can win the argument, really. Last time, what um, was ultimately agreed before it all fell apart in the, way, in the midst of the phone hacking scandal was that... Um, was that News Corp would spin out Sky News into an independent entity. Um, so I suppose you could have the possibility of that happening again. Certain Ofcom makes certain demands around Sky, but it is, like you say, a kind of structurally different deal this time. So maybe they won't uh, decide to go down that route. I guess, I mean, for our readers, the technicalities of how this may or may not happen ultimately are somewhat irrelevant because I guess what they want to know is what should I do with my Sky shares? Yeah, exactly right. And we've had, um, they get a bonus uh, dividend if the deal doesn't complete before the end of 2017. So there's definitely, yeah, from their point of view, they just want to look at what happens if it doesn't go through and what they are losing out relative to if they had sold the shares at the beginning. But the way they've structured the deal is to give it a a bit of legs um, in terms of the support it will have from the shareholders. So stay put for now. I think it's wise to stay put just... Because obviously this is only a 40-day... Which, I mean, how can you do all these things in 40 days? It doesn't seem like... They had like 15 it. months last time, I believe. Yeah, so 40 days! 40, so 40 days to do the... I think that's the media plurality and the commitment to broadcasting standards um, review, um, which is not a huge amount of time. So, uh, for well, now... This, our new government likes to do things quickly. 
Exactly right. They've got other things to do. <laughs> there is um, an argument that they want they'd want a compliant media in in order to communicate um, Brexit, which is probably the biggest communication challenge of any government for a long time. Um, and that actually that they'd be minded to accommodate our you know, kind of media uh, barons that we have in the country. Well, I actually um, heard uh, there was an interesting thing from um, from John Whittingdale who said that my MP. Um, well, there you go. Who said um, who was who was in favour of the deal because he said it shows talking about Brexit. It shows that we're open for business and it's a very good thing. Then there's some other politicians that have said, you know, again, it you know it should be allowed because um, you know how how can our media organisations compete with people like you know Amazon and things like that? Yeah, the rationale for the deal is yeah they've got to be able to see off the challenge from all these other content providers. The only way to do that again is to club together. Um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting angle. Yeah, unfortunately for John Whittingdale, he's not the culture secretary anymore, mm. as he was six months ago when Theresa May became prime yeah. minister. There you go. Um, I mean, talking of uh, telecoms and uh, media regulation, Ofcom are involved in another uh, thing in the magazine this week, which is the uh, BT uh, Open Reach decision. Um, I must admit, I, I look at this and think that it's a bit, it's, it's, it's a bit of a whitewash in regulatory terms. Mm. I think BT have been given a, a free pass here. Yeah, I think that was very much Megan Boxall's take, who, uh, who wrote the piece, who obviously covers all the media and telecoms, um, was that they got off lightly. I think she calls it a get-out-of-jail-free card, actually, um, just because... I, I like the way she's weaved in the, uh, the game of Monopoly without <laughs> actually suggesting there is anything monopolistic going on here at all. Well done, Megan. Um, um, yeah, I do like that intro. Um, OpenReach will be a separate legal entity. They will have a new chairman and CEO, but they that sh- that chairman and CEO will have accountability to BT's board. And BT's board will be able to veto any a- a- appointments, any investment that, that OpenReach decides to make. Yeah, and I so think, it's not really independent at all. Yeah, I think Gavin Patterson's words were, "We will be able to overthrow." any investment decisions. Overthrow, that's a very unusual word to use in the mm. business context, but uh, but there you go. I mean, you know, for the benefit of listeners, OpenReach is essentially the infrastructure division of BT, controls the, the, the network, essentially, and it's, and it's the last mile, which I think is the important thing, um, i.e. the bit of wire or whatever it is these copper. days. Well, it, it copper. was copper and increasingly wire. Fibre. Copper. I think it's still copper in a lot of cases. Um, which is some, the problem. Which is part some, of the problem. Some fibre that goes to, to people's homes. That other telecoms operators need to access to be able to compete. Yeah, and that's that was the big source of this kind of, you know, this review that Ofcom launched, I think it was two years ago now, and they entered into discussions with BT. And it's the fact that people like Sky, Talk, Talk, Vodafone use this, are wholesale customers that use this network. And it has been widely criticised that, you know, you do have these ageing kind of copper lines, you know, rather than fibre optic. It's not very efficient. Um, and they want BT to invest more into OpenReach. They want, it, they want, they want the, the infrastructure to, you know, to be upgraded. And they will actually, under the new agreement, have, um, have a say. They will be consulted on, apparently. I mean, I, I, I can't get my head around this, I've got to say. You know, so, so one, I think it's very odd that a, ma- a major competitor in the broadband market can also control the, essentially the entire infrastructure. Yes, yeah, so um, it's a quasi-monopoly, isn't it? It is a quasi-monopoly. I mean, Virgin ma- Media has its own... Apart from Virgin. Yeah. Um, yeah but that's, it, that's, a very, that's a much smaller network. And, and this, these competition is, yeah. issues are huge because you talk about fibre. So at the moment, it's fibre to the cabinet, which is in the street, and then from your... Ha- 
from the cabinet to your house might be copper. Um, so it's like having an enormously wonderful motorway that gets you to like I don't know the edge of your town, <laughs> and then a horse and, cart. And, then a, and then a little dirt track running to your house. <laughs> yeah. So the, and, <laughs> and what's increasingly important now is then fibre to the premises. So the laying of fibre on that last bit to your actual to your house, which is going to be so um, popular when it comes to things like virtual reality and stuff, where you need much higher speeds. So all these businesses, yes, they're concerned about the overall replacing of the copper um the copper network but they're also thinking for the future who's going to have um the balance of power when it comes to the most important infrastructure in terms of our communication technology which is going to be that last the last mile and then the last 10 meters yeah absolutely and so so yeah this shouldn't be a problem if if bt says yeah we're gonna we're gonna invest in this stuff however the thing that i look at here and think okay this is perhaps not going to happen in the way that some of the competitors would like it to happen is that the open reach still accounts for a very large chunk of BT's cash flow. And 40%. if they start having to pump lots of money into wonderful new infrastructure, their, caf- their cash flows dry up. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and because it's the assets which also back the liabilities of the pension fund, some of that cash flow then might in future have to be put into the pension deficit. That was so part you- of the reason for this, for the way the decision went. Yeah. Although, although as we were discussing before we started to record... I don't think it's Ofcom's job to worry about the state of, of a mm. company's pension liabilities. It's Ofcom's job to manage the provision of telecom services to households and businesses. And that's why we think, and we have said for a while, that BT's played a very good game here. They've managed to um, state quite clearly the impact that it would have negatively on the business. And um, I think essentially they've said... They've made it very difficult for Ofcom to recommend anything other than coming up with this legal separation. But uh, as it's, you it's say, bizarre. If BT get the assets and they get the cash flow and they get the ultimate decision on the on the investment plan. So the only thing that I can see kind of changes, and obviously BT shares went up strongly on the day. So BT shareholders liked it for that very much. Of course they did. Of course they did. And it's something we've talked about for a while. But I think the only thing that could maybe change the balance is if... Openreach is seen to continue to underinvest. The rivals try and use the new levers that are available to them, and then fall short, and then create enough of a stink. And there's quite there's quite a big support in Parliament for people wanting an independent Openreach uh, in terms of. You mean you MPs. mean you mean absolutely independent, a separate company yeah, separate. outside yeah. of BT, which is which is if it were if you're up to me, if I was running Ofcom, that's what I would have made happen. It's the only thing that makes sense as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. So if this if this kind of middle way, this third way starts to falter, I think you Ofcom have then got a firmer ground. But yeah, I I, I tend to agree with you that this is a cop out. It's a cop out. Copper cop out. Yeah, <laughs> right, okay. That's enough news. A lot of news this week, Emma. Well, you know, starting uh, off with a bang, aren't start they? Start off with a big bang. Right, let's let's chat about a few results because we've had uh, a busy week on the results. Let's start with Re- Weatherspoon. Because you've written about that in your Take a Stock column as well. Yeah, I've written about Weatherspoons this week. Um, it's a really interesting company, actually. The amount of um, costs that they're going to have to bear as a um, as a result of things, including the higher minimum wage, the national living wage, higher excise duties, higher electricity duties, um, and even the apprenticeship levy. Um, they made a big splash about this in their report, say, uh, saying that actually margins are going to be coming under some pressure, which is basically has been our view on the company for a while. Although this actually set of results was good. Um, my, my taking stock, I got into a little bit more, looking a little bit more deeply at 
the growth case for the company. Now, I think that costs, the depreciation costs of the estate and those things are starting to mount. Um, so we're, I'd say, negative on the shares over the next kind of three three years and the short to medium term because of the costs that they are very open that they're, they're going to be loaded with. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been negative on these shares for quite some time. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned growth because I guess this has been a, a pub opening story. The organic growth perhaps is not what it was. Same thing is true this week, actually, of Domino's Pizza, yes. which was a very heavy share faller this week. The, the, the growth, the, the domestic, the domestic growth, growth, yeah. growth, the like-for-like growth has, has really contracted quite sharply. And that was really priced for growth as well. Absolutely. And this is actually, I'm going to just quickly go on a, a very quick tangent to point to something else that's in the magazine. Sharepads Phil Oakley has written something on how you actually understand growth and what is worth paying for and what is not. And, and he very specifically talks about Domino's Pizza and how that if this domestic growth evaporates, if this like-for-like growth dries up, then you've got a, a company that is essentially priced for growth that's never going to happen and the share price fall could be quite substantial. And, and we're not seeing that at Weatherspoon yet, but we're worried that it might happen. Yes. I mean, what Weatherspoons have done well is to build up their food as a proportion of their revenues and expect... Have you eaten that stuff? <laughs> and especially, well... You really call that food? Uh, you know, Sorry, li- Weatherspoon. I've, I've... <laughs> I used to go for a Weatherspoons breakfast sometimes when I was a student. They're, very pop- so. they're apparently the fourth most popular choice for breakfast, according to a survey that they did present oh, themselves. No, don't get me wrong. It was really busy. We went for breakfast. We had a new one open in our town. Went for breakfast. Honestly, I'm not going back. <laughs> not going back. Well, a lot of people have it's gone cheap, back. Though. But actually, actually, food and breakfast in particular have has been you know a strong uh, kind of story in terms of like you say the like for like growth. So there is hope there that if they can grow the breakfast, even though the pub estate is not growing and actually uh, I think it's flattened off, and um, that they can still grow their sales. But even then, that growth doesn't seem to be stellar, and we are quite negative about the costs that are coming through. But there is the growth argument to be made. But so. costs are a component of profits. Yes. And if and if costs are rising and sales are not rising at an equivalent rate, then your profits profit growth is going to slow. Exactly right. So so you know that's that's the problem. And we haven't even mentioned kind of higher food and drink prices as a result of the weaker pound, which they actually said it would be a lower kind of proportional increase in cost, but that's also a potential impact on them. So I mean when it comes to dominoes, they have got the international angle, so that would be really interesting to see. So we've kept them on a buy because of the international angle. But um but, yeah. but I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I can, I can, it's, it's, also it's an interesting big, story. The share price fall does also give you an opportunity to buy in if you still believe in the long term growth. I do, I do think when it comes to the domestic story, the growth of, if you looked at Just Eat's results the other day, if you look at how players like Deliveroo have come into the space and the amount of advertising spend that they're getting out there, and I'm sure people have seen the efforts, um, that, that is concerning for their domestic, domestic growth. They were priced to really grow, but, Every time, yeah, we make a recommendation, that's a point in time. And after the fall in the shares, they were the kind of cheapest that you would have got for a few years. So if you had taken a play on the international and the, and the, the market had overdone it, that was, I suppose, the take. But Domino's has been a, a very successful, uh, successfully expansive franchise. There's nothing to suggest that it can't expand into to overseas markets in Europe. But equally, I don't know whether it's going to succeed selling pizza in Germany or not I really have no idea yeah that's, that's a difficult call to make I mean there are reasons to be positive about the domestic picture I think mobile revenues increasing their share of the overall revenue so they are converting people to mobile um, they are winning new customers and but yeah I think they were a good first mover in that space of mm. takeaway with a really strong infrastructure so the worry is that other players have caught up and now start gaining market share and that 
rather than just offering pizzas and then things like chicken wings and stuff that goes around it, if you go on another platform, you can have your pick of many different uh, restaurants. That's true. That's true. Or you, or you can always have a phone number of your local takeaway. Or you can even just ring them. Or but, you can leave uh, your house and walk. Or you, you can even do that. Um, as you know, I was discussing Domino's, and we've decided that you, there's a certain age that you get to where you can't physically eat Domino's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've both we've both hit it with the same age. Is it before or after you can't eat Weatherspoon's food? Is around the same sort of time. <laughs> uh, okay, right, Emma. What have uh, your pick of the results this week? Yeah, well, um, I'm going to start with myself, which is a Viva. Well, that's what I would like you to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with a Viva. Um, yeah, that's our income tip of the year. They had very good results, uh, up seven percent on the day. I think shares up seven percent. I imagine the the reason for that was because of the uh, Mark Wilson, chief executive, said they were going to return more capital to shareholders. Share buyback is the preferred method. But you've got some chunky dividends being paid out still as oh, well. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, so lots of money coming back. Yeah, lots, right of, lots of money coming back. Um, Aviva, Aviva Investors, they've seen their Ames funds triple their funds under management. That's their multi-asset funds. Yeah, it's, it's like a competitor to Gars, basically. That's their main kind of flagship funds. Um, but also the life business done very well. Again, we spoke about the Friends Life acquisition. That's done really great things for them. Interestingly, actually, something we've written about elsewhere in the magazine, um, sales of individual annuities rising. Actually, we've written about another company this week in that space in the tip section. Um, but yeah, individual annuities, back from the dead. It's it's more that the market's stabilised, I would argue, rather than, you know, it's going to shoot up. And some Mar- companies have left, Prudential have left the annuity. Exactly, business. Prudential's left individual annuity market. Um, a lot of the, as the standard life example shows, and actually what Aviva are trying to do now, is um, kind of turn their attention more towards asset management, that kind of thing. So if you are a company like JRP Group, who are very much, I mean, they're doing stuff in the kind of defined benefit de-risking space as well, but they also, you know, individual annuities or guaranteed income for life, as they call it, is still a major part of what they do. And sales there have stabilised. They argue because the open market is growing. I think that's quite interesting what you've just said. So they're calling them guaranteed income for life, not annuities. I think they've. And, and, actually, I, I think, think they've this... called them that for a bit, mm. either just retirement or partnership. I can't. It's it's part but of it, this whole. We don't want to jargonify. No, no, it's de-jargonifying, yeah. but it's also kind of saying exactly what they are. And it's actually, I'm not surprised that the annuity market hasn't died altogether because actually people want that certainty. Exactly. I never. And, that, that'll be my argument. I I, I think. A lot of people will still buy annuities. A lot of people want that. It's what they. It's what the providers always say: is that if you survey people and what they actually want, they say, "I want a secure, guaranteed income." Oh, an annuity, and, I, and, then, you, <laughs> and then you say annuity, and they're like, "Oh, yeah." Well, I, I guess the problem with annuities has been that uh, you didn't get a lot for your money. And you still uh, in don't. Really. Years. You still don't. Uh, but with the interest rate. Uh, cycle turning potentially exactly. but certainly in the US that's going to head over here uh, assuming that the economic growth um, spreads good economic growth spreads um, annuity rates might start to improve yes and and taking that money out of yourself and thinking you can get a good return out of it obviously you take a fair amount of risk there so on going into a drawdown strategy you take a different kind of risk so it's just yeah what comes down to the right thing for the right person um, but yeah exactly right okay well We've kind of run out of time. Thank you, Emma. 
good debut. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, lots more in the magazine. It's a bumper issue. I mean, there's 75 results and tips, or there or thereabouts, and tips and tip-up bounty. It is. It's, it's a real bounty. Um, I couldn't even begin to even point you in the direction of, of interesting things because there is so much interesting in the magazine. We've got four features this week. We have our, our private investor diarist, John Rosier, um, who's having a good year so far. We've got James Norrington talking about his 10 asset portfolio, which is doing well, which is it's basically uh, a kind of it's a, it's a limited uh, involvement type of approach that, that he's, he's uh, experimenting with here. We've got the cover feature written by Chris Dillo, um, The Power of Imprecision. And, and what he's really talking about here is how numbers that are presented as accurate, especially in the world of forecasting, can lull you into a full sense of security that make you make decisions which are, are, are perhaps not very good for you. And that imprecision and actually a, a, bit, a bit more fluffiness can, can help you uh, make better decisions. It's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. But uh, read the feature uh, and you'll understand uh, what he's talking about there. Plenty more in the personal finance and funds section, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. I say lots more in the news section, lots more in the comments section. Wow. And we can, we can kind of relax for a couple of days. And a shout out for our special podcast on profit warning. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. So Megan Boxall chaired that with uh, myself and uh, Alan Hudson of EY talking about why have there been so many profit warnings so far in 2017. Indeed, my, my old parish before I came came here. Exactly. Okay, so yeah, uh, yeah, have a listen to that. It's actually, there's loads of podcasts on there that uh, if you haven't actually caught up with them, uh, it's worth doing. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. The Power of Imprecision is the cover of the magazine this week, uh, £4.90, all good news agents, uh, or get online and subscribe. And if you like this podcast, uh, I say there's plenty more uh, over on iTunes or Acast, but uh, get on iTunes, give us a good review. Thank you very much, and we'll be back again next week. Goodbye.